It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, January 15th, 2016. Now, this will be the last episode of this type. Yeah, we're coming to the end of uh, the sermons that I preached in the month of uh, December. But I'm not home until late on Monday, so details in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, open up our Bibles, and actually do comparative work to see what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles, and apostolates, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word really says. Are they teaching sound biblical Christian orthodoxy? Are they twisting God's Word and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach? That's kind of the thing that we do here. Now, this week, while I've been in Norway, we've been playing the uh, sermons, all ten of them, uh, that I preached in the month of December, you know, the Advent service, the uh, midweek Advent sermons, and now we're going to get all the way up to Christmas. So I, I know we're a little bit out of season here, and, and I get that. And uh, hopefully you've found this uh, exercise to be somewhat eye-opening. And, um, you know, and, you know, the idea here is you're hearing sound biblical exegesis. That's the idea. So today we're going to hear three sermons, uh, you know, three of them that I preached during the Christmas season. Uh, the first is entitled, uh, Unto You is Born a Savior, and it's uh, based on the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Second sermon is titled, Lord, You Let Your Servant Go in Peace, and it's on Luke two twenty-two through 40. And the final Christmas sermon, and the final one of this whole series, is Don't Let the Package Fool You, and it's based on Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. So let's get right to it. Here is sermon number one. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And it came to pass in those days that there, were went, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
and this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said unto one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. In the name of Jesus. Give me a second to compose myself. That particular hymn always has a tendency to wreck me a little bit. Our text this evening, the traditional Christmas text taken from Luke chapter 2, it proves that we're nothing like God. Our God broke into His creation to save His fallen and sinful creatures, and precious few were even aware of God's presence. This past Sunday, we read the text where Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, hears the voice of Mary and the baby inside of her leaps for joy. She knew. Joseph knew. Not many other people did. How can we be so blind? How can our race, the race of mankind, which was originally created in the awesome image of the Almighty God, but in our striving to be like God through the temptation of the devil, we have been so twisted and corrupted and plunged into great darkness, and so great is that darkness that we can't even see the light, even if it were pointed out to us, even when the light is tabernacling among us in human flesh. The mystery of what's happening in the Incarnation is solved and revealed in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through which reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the very nature of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice here, Christ's actions are the exact opposite actions of our first parents, Adam and Eve who, when they were tempted by the devil in the garden, the, te- the devil basically said, take and eat of that fruit and you will be like God. And Eve pondered inside of her heart and saw that the fruit was good and that it would make one wise and be like God. And so, even though she was a creature, she reached out her hand and strove to be like God. And now God Himself is among us. And it says He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, He emptied Himself. And truly He did. Taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, God humbled Himself. Wow. And became obedient. God obeying? Yeah. Became obedient even to the point of death. Even a death on something as despicable as a cross. Humbled Himself is exactly what the Lord did. Now, although it is true that Luke, by informing us of the historical context in which Christ was born, he informs us that Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to register for a Roman tax. This is not throwaway historical data. Instead, this is theologically rich information. Note the fact that even though Mary was carrying the King of Kings inside of her womb, there was no earthly privilege that was granted to her because of it. And rather than receive a military escort and a golden carriage and the greatest comforts that the Roman Empire could supply her, she instead made the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably on foot, while she was, as this text says, great with child, swollen feet, Braxton Hicks, and sore back and all. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our kids, and every time we would see a pregnant woman after that, we'd think, oh, that poor thing. Right? And when she arrives in Bethlehem, there is no royal red carpet. There isn't a presidential suite at the Bethlehem Hilton or even the basic necessities for a woman who has now gone into full labor. Her water has broken, and with no midwife to assist her, Mary and Joseph are going to have to figure all of this out on their own in a town bursting with travelers. And to make matters worse, rather than a clean hospital room, she's going to have to finish her pregnancy in an animal pen. It doesn't get any meaner than that. You can almost see them. Mary doubled over with a strong contraction. Joseph laying down his cloak on the straw so that she can have a place to get off of her feet. The smell of animal urine and cow patties, but with no time to take it all in or even to complain. And then another contraction hits. And this one's stronger than the one before. Mary's mom is not there to help her or even to guide her. Tell her what to do next. This is her first kid. And she's probably, what, 14, 15? This is scary for a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, but can you imagine a teenage girl? Joseph holds her hand. She clenches her teeth. She lets out a cry. How many hours was Mary in labor? Text doesn't say. Doesn't say. But finally, with the work of labor finished, the Scripture says she brought forth her firstborn son. She finally heard his first cry. Jesus had to be cleaned up, as all infants do. And there he was, the son of David, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, crying as his lungs took in air for the first time And then his parents counted ten tiny little fingers, ten tiny little toes, just to make sure everything was all right. Make sure the baby was healthy. They didn't have Apgar tests back then. 
Yes, I grew up in a medical family. So Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger. An animal troth. But she probably didn't do that before she tried to nurse him for the first time. Maybe even tried to sing a Judean lullaby to him. Mary and Joseph had a lot ahead of them. Nighttime feedings, poopy diapers, potty training, learning how to speak, to walk, to read, to work. All the things that we face as parents, as we care for the children that God has sent to us, they face that too as they raised God incarnate who has come to save us. And that's kind of the thing. If you were to see this family back then, they looked just like any family of the time. They weren't rich. They didn't wear good clothes. They were poor, mean. If we'd seen them walking down the street, would there have been anything to point out that that baby of hers was the God who spoke the universe into existence? How could we miss it? How could we not know? Mary and Joseph would have to begin this task of parenting while on the run, being fugitives, hiding from Herod in Egypt, making it even tougher. I mean, you think it's tough, you know, moving to a new town where you don't know anybody. Why don't you try a different country? And when they finally were able to return to Israel, they would return to one of the poorest of the poor villages in all of Israel. They would end up having to work hard by the sweat of their brow to put food on the table, clothes on their backs, without the help of a welfare state, but with the added burden of having to pay Roman taxes on top of all that they had to do. And if the angels and the written Word of God had not revealed the amazing good news of what God was doing for us, we, just like the people of Bethlehem that first Christmas night, would be completely oblivious to what was going on. And we know it. But you see, the good news, the Gospel was preached that first Christmas night. And there were in the same country, the text says, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God posted angels around the tree of life with flaming swords. What terrible duty that had to have been for them. Absolutely awful. Humanity made in the image of God now barred from the tree of life to protect themselves from themselves lest they live forever as the walking dead. And now they have good news to announce. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. 
And do you hear that? That's you. That's me. And the angels gave this report to the shepherds. The shepherds' job was to get this report out. To let everybody know. Everywhere. All people. Including the people here in this church this night. 2,000 years later. Good news of great joy for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Savior. The fact that we didn't even know God was among us shows we need a Savior. How can we be so blind, so bent in on ourselves, so upside down, so evil, so twisted, that God Himself is born, and yet none of us, no one knew. The shepherds wouldn't have known if the angels hadn't said so. And so they show up. And here, this will be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What kind of sign is that? Head into Bethlehem. Find the poorest child you can find. A newborn babe in a place you would never expect to see it. In an animal feeding trough. This is the sign for you. Lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And see, that's what the prophecy about Christ was. Prince of Peace. He isn't come to swing His sword. He isn't come to cast us all into hell as we deserve. He's come instead to bleed and to die for us. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go even now unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord, they knew this was a message from the Lord, that the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And the report reaches us this night. Good news. Great joy. Unto you is born a Savior. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all of the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. See, God chose to reveal what He was doing not to kings, not to governors, not to the wealthy, not to the celebrities, not to the beautiful people. The announcement was made, well, it wasn't made in the palace or in the Senate or even in a building made by human hands. The announcement was made to poor, hard-working shepherds whom the world considers insignificant. Shepherds in the medieval period worked so hard. This is such a difficult task that when they would die, they would have a tuft of, of sheepskin put into their hand to be buried with it so that when they stood before God and said, how come you weren't able to go to church? All they would have to do is show this and say, I was a shepherd. That's how hard their job was. 
Sheep are dumb animals, very difficult to work with, prone to wander off. They have just about every natural enemy that you can possibly imagine and are completely oblivious to it. We're a lot like them. So the announcement wasn't made in a palace. It was made to these hard-working shepherds whom the world, well, considers insignificant. You'll know shepherds don't dwell in palaces, but out in the open field, subject to all the elements. When it's hot, it's, they're hot. When it's raining, they're wet. When it's cold, they're shivering. Just be glad they didn't have to do it in North Dakota. It is these whom the gospel comes to. It is these humble and lowly. These are the ones who are ready to hear the good news of the Savior. Those who've languished under the curse. Those who are proud and worship fame, money, fortune, power. They're far too self-reliant and too self-focused to even imagine that they would need a Savior. And so it is. Nothing has changed even today. The powerful, the purpose-driven, and those seeking to win and live their lives victoriously so that they can be affluent, influential, powerful, and wealthy, prosperous, and perpetually healthy. They have no need of a baby born in a barn, born in mean poverty, born to be mercilessly slaughtered on a Roman cross. But we do. We do. And the sad thing is, is that even the wealthy need this. They're far too busy, far too bent on themselves to pay attention to such a sign as a baby lying in a manger, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Luther, commenting on this text, says this, The right and gracious faith which God's word and work demands is that you firmly believe that Christ is born for you and that this birth is yours and occurred for your benefit. The sign that the shepherds saw and now shared through this text is a sign given for you. It's humble. It's mean. Nothing striking or glitzy about it. You'll notice the complete absence of twinkling lights, of carolers. Even the angels were not on the scene. They got to announce it and then disappeared. Mary and Joseph didn't see the angels and didn't even hear the song. And they wouldn't have had much time to enjoy it anyway. Herod would soon be on their trail trying to kill the baby. So all of this has happened to benefit you. The Gospel teaches that Christ was born because of us and that He died and suffered. He did all of this, everything, because of us, as the angel said, for I proclaim to you great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David the Savior who is Christ the Lord. In these words, you clearly see He is born for us. 
So again, we hear the words of the sermon hymn we just sang. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies He in such mean estate where oxen, donkeys are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. And here's the important part. Nails, spears shall pierce Him through. The cross He bore for me, for you. Hail, hail, the world, Word made flesh the babe, the son of Mary. See, that's why he's here. The manger will give way to the cross. The shepherds will give way to the Roman soldiers who will eventually take this young baby who's grown into a man and they will spit on him. They will beat him They will scourge him and in the process take out of his back all kinds of flesh and blood. And then they will nail him to a cross. Because if there was any one human being who was truly born with a purpose, it was Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. To redeem those whom the devil had forced into bondage, sin and slavery and death to free us and to redeem us and to set us free. He became obedient and took all of this so that we can go free. So the sign is there for you today, this evening. The babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. Hail, the Word made flesh. The babe the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, myrrh. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices in light of this good news. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy for Christ is born. The babe, the son of Mary. In the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll be listening to sermon number two in the series. Lord, you let your servant go in peace. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Right. 
Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas. Because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing. And have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, but Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! Faith Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas is having a Biblical Worldview Conference February 5th and 6th, 2016 with the theme, Standing Firm in a Hostile World, to help Christians in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Biblical Christianity. Speakers will include Pastor David J. Weber, Attorney Mark Stern, Professor Alan Quist, Dr. Adam Francisco, and Pastor Joseph Abrahamson. Registration and details can be found at worldviewsa.org. Again, that's worldviewsa.org. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code 
for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if the passages about Jesus, well, the pastor ends up making about you or about him. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. Well, uh, the uh, amount of money of your choosing, per se, uh, we have four ranks. If you want to join our crew, you pick the rank that you uh, would like to join our crew at. Uh, the lowest rank member of our crew is the Powder Monkey at nine ninety five a month. Gunner's mate then at twenty four ninety five. Master Gunner at forty nine ninety five. Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five. Great way to support us. And uh, of course, if you'd like to make a one time contribution, you can click on the donate button, or you can do it the old fashioned way. Make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box one three three four four, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the second sermon entitled, Lord, You Let Your Servant Go in Peace, based on Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus, uh, the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. 
Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of the Lord was upon him. In the name of Jesus. All right, our gospel text today is brimming, teeming, crackling with prophetic significance. Hopefully I'll be able to tease it out so that you can appreciate it. Um, We live in days when people try to crack all kinds of biblical codes, and always they end up missing the whole point. The book of Revelation reveals that the spirit of prophecy, or the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Christ and what he's doing for us. And so it's important for us to note that this is the very first time our gospel text records that Jesus, the Lord himself, God, enters into his temple. It's a big deal. So, here's what our text says. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. You're going to hear this over and again in this text. According to the law of Moses. According to the law of Moses. According to the law. And there's a reason for this. Because Jesus, although he's only a 40-day-old infant at this point, is already doing the substitutionary work of saving you and me. That requires him to be actively and passively obedient to God's law, to keep it perfectly for us. And so, thankfully, the Lord chose very wise parents for our Savior, because there's things that have got to be done that Jesus can't do on his own. He's got to be carried along to do so. I was thinking of uh, Tyler as he was coming in this morning, like this, with Kinsley, right? Yeah. Well, that's kind of Mary and Joseph today. They're kind of coming into the temple like that. Jesus is not mobile on his own, so he's got to be brought. But all of these things need to be done to fulfill the law. The law must be kept perfectly, otherwise Christ cannot be your substitute, cannot be your Savior. So we learn here, time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, which kind of begs the question, What on earth did Mary need to be purified from? Because she conceived Christ through her ears, if you would, through the Word of God in the the angel Gabriel, telling her that she would bear the Messiah, and she was a virgin. I mean, you could not think of a more holy and pure conception and birth, right? Well, think of it this way. This is kind of where you start to begin to see that substitutionary work here. Because it's going to say that Christ is going to be redeemed. But what does he need to be redeemed from? He is sinless. So what we're going to find here is that Christ, our Redeemer, is redeemed. Jesus becomes the redeemed Redeemer. And Jesus, because ultimately when he goes to the cross, he's going to carry the sins of the world on his back and atone for them, if you would. Well, that means that he becomes the sinless sinner. So already you kind of start to see this in the text, where this work where Christ is our substitute He's all of humanity, squished into one dude. Come to redeem us. Maybe that's a little too casual, but you you get the point. So, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. A lot to unpack even in that small statement. Now, just so you know, we're 40 days after the birth of Christ. We fast forward a little bit. We're looking into the future, if you would, uh, liturgically. 
And if you do the math, and the church fathers have done the math on this, and I went and did that terrible thing, math. I mean, you know what I feel about math, okay? But I had to double-check to make sure this was legit. So I went and double-checked. And sure enough, if you do the math according to the chronology given us by Luke himself in this gospel, it is 490 days, when Jesus shows up at the temple, it's 490 days since the appearance of the angel Gabriel in the temple to Zechariah, you know, announcing that his son would be the forerunner of the Messiah, announcing the arrival of the Messiah, if you would. Now, this is where it gets fun. That is exactly 70 weeks. 70 weeks is hugely prophetic. From the book of Daniel, we read, 70 weeks, chapter 9, verse 24 and 25. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So here we have a literal 70 weeks from the announcing that the Messiah is on the way to now his first appearance in the temple. And Malachi 3.1 starts to ring in here. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And so he has. He's suddenly come into his temple. Granted, it's in a pram, but he's suddenly appeared in his temple. And that's kind of the thing. No one expected him to show up that way. And yet he did, right? So the redeemed redeemer... This all points to Christ as our substitute, like I've said. The spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world or the sinless sinner has now appeared in the temple because everything about Christ's life is ultimately about that blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And even our text, our Old Testament text, we read from here that this Old Testament text is pointing to Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you have read that book out there. It's called The Blessed Life. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Robert Morris. I do not recommend it because Robert Morris takes this text from Exodus and makes it about somehow some kind of principle of the first. You give your first 10% and then God will bless the rest. That's a racket. All right. In the New Testament, we are not under the Old Testament commandments of the Mosaic Covenant to tithe. And so Exodus 13 isn't about you giving anything to God. Exodus 13 is all about what Christ has done for you. And so now we learn from this of what's going on. Interesting phrase. Let's take a look again at our Old Testament text. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast of beast is mine. And truly, Jesus is the one who opened the womb of Mary. Not a man. It was he who did it. Interesting way of putting it. So then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your forefathers that he shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come you ask your sons, what does this mean? You shall say, by a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. 
For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Interesting commandment. All of this in light of being brought out of slavery, which then shows us that the story of the Exodus ultimately points really to the same story that we find ourselves in. Just like the children of Israel were born in slavery, slavery under Pharaoh, a false god king, we are born in slavery. Slavery to the devil, a false god king, one who exalts himself to be God who isn't. And the Lord is the one who mightily saves us. And this redeeming of the firstborn, all of this points to Christ, the firstborn Son of Mary and the only begotten Son of God. All of this ultimately has its fulfillment in pointing to Him and to His sacrifice and what it means basically to redeem in this case. So if you you were living in Israel at the time, if you had a firstborn son, you'd take your son to the temple and you'd offer a sacrifice to redeem it. You wouldn't break your son's neck. You'd redeem your son. All right. Basically say, Lord, he's yours. Here's our sacrifice. May we have him back for a little bit of time. So he's like old enough to drive. And then we'll, we'll buy him luggage, something, right? <laughs> that other part's stuff I added, but you get the point. <laughs> okay. So this is what's going on. Now, later in the Mosaic Covenant, when this law gets put into the covenant itself, there is a proviso. And the proviso is is that if the people, the persons, the family who is redeeming their son cannot afford a lamb, then there's a poverty-level sacrifice. Two turtle doves. And that's what Christ was redeemed with. Mary and Joseph were poverty-stricken. They couldn't even afford a lamb. And so when you read that Christ is redeemed according to the law with a pair of pigeons, two turtle doves, this shows that Mary and Joseph couldn't even afford a lamb. And this points to how Christ Himself, God in human flesh, if you would, the richest, well, being, because He's not a creature, the richest being that ever was and ever will be, has come into the world and humbled himself to the point of being born in abject poverty. This is all part of his emptying himself. This is all part of his service to us. His humbling as he comes to serve us, not to be served. And so we now go back to our text. So while this is all going on, this redemption is going on, it says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Fascinating way of putting it. A uh, pastor of mine noted years ago that Simeon wasn't given a death sentence. He was given a life sentence. He was promised he would continue to live until he saw the Messiah. So he was given a life sentence. No death for you, Simeon. No death for you until, right? And so the Holy Spirit was upon him, and he came into the uh, he came in in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, there it is again. 
sacrificial substitutionary work. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. For my own eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Do those words sound familiar to any of you here? All right. Some of you, yes. Some of you look at me like, what are you talking about? All right. Well, let me explain. In the historic liturgy, which the church has had for millennia, this is a song that's part of the liturgy, and it's called the Nuctimidus. All right? If you, I'll, I'll, I'll torture you guys with my rendition of it, but it goes like this. Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of every people. A light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. And then everyone sings, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning is now and will be forever. Amen. Mess up the last part, but you get the point. Okay? That is a song that Christians have sung for millennium. And these are the words of Simeon. It's called the Nuctimidus. And the Lutherans did something outrageous. They tinkered with the liturgy shortly after the Reformation, and they moved the Nuctimidus. They moved it. And you know where they moved it to? Right after the Lord's Supper. Right after the Lord's Supper. That was the big Lutheran innovation. We took the song that everyone's been singing we stuck it right after that. And here's why. Because Simeon says, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. Simeon is saying, Lord, now I'm ready to die. If you were to ask a Lutheran catechumen, you know, 12-year-old boy or girl getting ready to go into catechism class, you know, what that song's all about, they'd probably say something to the effect of, well, that's the song we sing when church is over. We're getting really close to it. Lord, you let, let us go in peace. We're just about done. Thank God, right? That's how they talk. I don't know why they talk this way. But <laughs> not like I've raised any Lutheran kids. Any, but anyway, the idea here, though, that's not declaring that the service is over. It's declaring that because we have seen the salvation of God, and truly we do see God's salvation, because Christ is present with us. We begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God's Word says, where two or more are gathered in Christ's name, He is there among us. And He is also among us when we take the Lord's Supper and we come to the rail here. And you hear these words, take, eat, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take, drink, this is the true blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so it's appropriate that we end and sing, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. Because when you hear the absolution, when you hear the gospel of the forgiveness of your sins, when you receive Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins, you, like Simeon, are ready to die. You really are. You are can go in peace because God has made peace 
with you, for you, in Christ. And so these are very important words. And this is why the church historically has sung these words as part of the liturgy. So depart in peace. So his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Marveled. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Keep this in mind. When it comes to Jesus, you are either a believer or you are an unbeliever. You are either at peace with God and have received the forgiveness of your sins penitently on your knees, or you are hostile to God. There is no third ground. No one is Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. You can't say, I'm neutral. No, it's one or the other. And so here Simeon is prophesying this and telling some important things to Mary, that he's going to be a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Have any of you seen that amazing Michelangelo statue of the Pieta? Right? You know what that is? It's a, it's a statue. And there's Mary, and she's holding the dead corpse of Christ. And where this is supposedly to have taken place is, well, she was there when Christ was crucified. She watched Him die. And so after He's let down from the cross, well, the artists basically depict that moment in what's called the Pieta. And if you think about it, all of us who are parents, the last thing on earth we ever want to see is one of our children die. And here, Simeon, moved by the Holy Spirit, prophetically is letting Mary know of the suffering that she's going to experience because of her own son. She too will have a sword pierce her own soul as she watches her son and her Savior die. And then he concludes with this, so the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Think of it this way. Simeon and Anna, really old. Really old. In a sense, they kind of represent the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The Old Testament has run its course. It's become aged. It's got all kinds of wrinkles. It's crackly. It's on its last leg. The new covenant is about to spring forth. So Anna and Simeon, in a very real way, kind of embody the, the prophets and Moses and the old covenant itself, ready to give way to the next generation, the new covenant. And Anna, again, you can't make this stuff up, you know, she was married for seven years, and biblically, seven is the perfect number for God. And how many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. Well, 7 times 12 is 84, and she's 84 years old. Again, it's one of those things you sit there and go, hmm, that's numerically interesting, somewhat significant. There's a gentleman on YouTube by the name of William Tapley. I wish he'd spend more time trying to crack these kinds of codes. But anyway, it says of Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Look at that. A woman prophet 
comes, picks up Jesus and says, this is the one. I'm sure there were people looking at her going, Granny, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, you're talking like this kid's the Messiah. He is. He is. Right? And the Holy Spirit's the one who reveals all of this. Amazing stuff. So when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, there it is again, performed everything according to the law. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yeah, Jesus was born so that we can be born again. That's the idea here. And so he's already fulfilling his work. And then it says they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Fascinating story, is it not? What's it all mean? What's your application? Go and believe. Believe this. That God himself has suddenly appeared in his temple. And he's done so to redeem you. He who did not need to be redeemed was redeemed so that you can be redeemed. That's a lot of redemption going on there, right? Or, as Simeon says, now that you believe and you've seen your salvation, you now can depart in peace. You are ready to die. You are ready to die today, tomorrow, 30 years from now, or ready to live when Christ appears. Because you have peace with God. Because your king has suddenly come into his temple. Has done so to fulfill the law in your place so that he can die in your place and be punished for your sins so that you might live and be adopted as sons. And truly, that's what you are. You washed, baptized believers here at Kongsvinger. You are the children of God, adopted into his family, and you pray things like, Our Father who art in heaven. You're not asking for a potential father. My potential father who art in heaven, I hope that I'm good enough to hallow thy name. No! You have been made good enough by what Christ has done for you. And all of this is gift, which makes Christmas all the more better, does it not? In the name of Jesus, amen. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The third and final Christmas sermon. The last one I preached in the month of December. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God 
and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Faith Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas is having a Biblical Worldview Conference February 5th and 6th, 2016 with the theme, Standing Firm in a Hostile World, to help Christians in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Biblical Christianity. Speakers will include Pastor David J. Weber, Attorney Mark Stern, Professor Alan Quist, Dr. Adam Francisco, and Pastor Joseph Abrahamson. Registration and details can be found at worldviewsa.org. Again, that's worldviewsa.org. segment of Fighting for the Faith for the Week, third and final sermon that I preached during the Christmas season. sermon is entitled, Don't Let the Package Fool You, and it's based on Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, They went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, as they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In the name of Jesus, amen. Verse 40, the child was growing and becoming strong. And while being filled with wisdom, passive, by the way, he's being filled. God's doing the filling and the grace or the favor of God was upon him. So here's our theme for this passage. Here's the idea. Don't let the package fool you. If you remember the movie Forrest Gump, well, Forrest Gump had that famous saying, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. 
And the idea is this, it's simple. When you look at a box of chocolates, they all kind of look like chocolates. But then when you bite into one of them, you might say, oh, that's really amazing. Or you might say, ugh, <laughs> why did I pick that one? That's kind of the idea. So you don't, don't let the package fool you. That's the idea in our passage today. So here in this text that we just read, Jesus is making his second appearance in the temple. And Jesus and the temple are inextricably linked. Important thing to keep in mind. And this first verse, verse 40, we, in a sense, get the fulfillment of the type and shadow of which Solomon really was the type. Let me, exa- let me explain. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 3 through 12. You remember, Solomon becomes king of Israel after his father David had passed away. And it says this, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered, accounted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked for this and have not asked for yourself for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. The idea is this. In this text, we see that the son of David is asking for wisdom, and he grows in wisdom, and God gives him wisdom. Wisdom to govern his people while he sits on the throne of his father, David. And so here in the temple, we see Jesus in our text this morning, well, full of wisdom wise beyond his years, a child if you would. Now, I'll have to save it for a later time, but there's something significant in the fact that Jesus is 12 years old, think 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, and that it takes his parents three days to find him. There's something going on there in the numbers in the Bible, but that's for a different sermon. I'll have to tease that out at a later time. In this text, suffice it to say, that Solomon in type and shadow in the Old Testament is pointing beeline right to Christ. You know, and so when you hear about Jesus growing in wisdom and having wisdom beyond his years, this is the fulfillment that Solomon was pointing to because Jesus himself truly is the son of David who sits on the throne of his father David forever. And God has given him great wisdom to rule the multitude, the great multitude, too well, too big to be numbered. 
as he rules them forever and forever. So we now come back to our text. That's all kind of pretext. Now his parents, it says, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, there's a lot of fun that you can have with this text. And the reason I say that is because, well, we parents can relate to this story. Many of us, myself included, have experienced the stress and the panic of taking our eyes off of our children only for a moment at the mall or a grocery store and then turning around and not seeing your children where, they thought, where you thought they would be. We get this. We understand this. But here's the issue. If you've been paying close attention to what the Gospel of Luke has revealed about Jesus, there is truly a sense in which their stress, the stress of Mary and Joseph, is unwarranted and unjustified. I know that sounds kind of cruel, but let me make my point. Jesus isn't like any other child, and yet they know that. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, Jesus looks like every other child. But see, Jesus is God in human flesh. And, he really, and it really is easy to forget that when it comes to Jesus. There is so much more than meets the eye. So let me be blunt. Jesus is God, God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh. And because of that, He's quite capable of taking care of Himself. I know that seems kind of blunt, but we'll kind of come back to this more in a minute. So, Mary and Joseph are in a panic. They've lost the Son of God. Yeah, he's, <laughs> which it's just, you think about it, it's, it's just bizarre to talk this way, but it's important that we do. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple. So on the third day, they find the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. Again, there's something going on there. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. <laughs> And so, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, here's kind of the irony of the situation. Here is the word of God made flesh. And that's who Jesus is. Remember what John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so here we have the word of God made flesh dwelling among us, and the Word of God made flesh is indwelling among us is astounding the teachers of the Torah by His understanding of the Scriptures, even as a 12-year-old boy. How were they to know who Jesus truly was? Well, they don't. He looked just like any other 12-year-old boy of the time. So the teachers of the Torah had no way of knowing who Jesus really was. It hadn't been revealed to them, but they were amazed and astounded of His understanding of the Scriptures and oh, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall just listening to Jesus teach and ask the questions of those who are the ones who are supposed to be asking him the questions, right? He's the catechumen. He is, this is Jesus in junior high. And junior high kids get asked the questions, but he's the one asking the questions. So I think it's fantastic. So all of this then is part of the mystery and even the scandal itself of the Incarnation. Here we have the Word of God made flesh. 
but there's no bright neon light. It's not like Jesus is walking around and he's got a halo over his head as all the medieval artists depict the, the boy Jesus, right? No, he's just going about his business doing his thing and he looks like every other boy, but he's not. So this is part and parcel of the mystery of how God comes to us and even works among us today. I want you to think about this. When we take the Lord's Supper, all we see with our eyes is ordinary bread and, well, cheap, sweet wine. But don't let your eyes and your taste buds deceive you. God's Word reveals that in, with, and under the bread and wine is the very body and blood of Jesus Christ broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. When we consider our baptisms, all we see um, and sense with our eyes and our physical senses is very ordinary Minnesota tap water. But God's Word reveals that when that ordinary tap water is combined with God's Word, it becomes a washing of regeneration that washes away sins. And that in that Minnesota tap water, you all had your sins washed away, your hearts circumcised by Christ, and you yourselves buried and raised with Him. All through Minnesota tap water added to the Word. When we consider the words of the absolution that we hear week after week, you hear from the pastor's mouth, a man who I can attest is truly an ordinary sinner just like you. You hear from him that your sins are forgiven. Yet, the Word of God reveals that that absolution that you hear from his, your pastor's, sinful mouth doesn't have its origin in him. But what he speaks is an echo of the absolution that's actually pronounced in heaven. John 20, verse 23 says this, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have already been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have already been retained. You see, it might look like the pastor's getting all uppity. It might look like the pastor's overstepped his bounds. But in reality, the pastor has done nothing of the sort. All he's done is echo what has happened in eternity. And that is the forgiveness of your sins. So, don't let the package fool you. Twelve-year-old Jesus is, well, he looks like twelve-year-old Jesus. And he truly is twelve years old. But remember, he's God in human flesh at twelve years old. More than meets the eye. And so now his parents, they find him in the temple. Everyone's astonished by his questions and his understanding of the Scriptures. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold your father and I. Um, Joseph isn't Jesus' father, is he? No, he's not. See, even Mary is already, by the time Jesus is 12, year old, 12 years old, she's wrestling with this incarnation of who Jesus is. Behold, your Father and I, we've been searching for you in great distress. And He said to them, Why were you looking for Me? Did you not know I must be in My Father's house? Notice that Jesus doesn't break the fourth commandment. He answers her question, which 
wrongly stated that Joseph was Jesus' father. And so he asked a question with a question that rightly pointed out who Jesus' father truly is. You see, remember, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph is not his physical father. He might be his legal adopted father, but he's not his physical father. And so Jesus asked the question, why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' work is intimately wrapped up with and cannot be separated from the work of God happening where? In the temple. Like a son learning his earthly father's trade. Think carpenter teaching his son to be a carpenter, right? Jesus is learning and learning to be about his father's trade and his father's business. But Jesus' father's business is not carpentry. What is the father's business? Well, the father set up shop in Israel long ago, forgiving people's sins. Jesus is now hard at work following in his father's footsteps, keeping God's law perfectly and keeping it perfectly for you. Even perfectly keeping the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, by perfectly honoring and obeying his earthly parents. All we are born rebels. We are all rebellious children, regardless of how well compared to other children we've obeyed our parents. But compared to Jesus, we don't even come close. In fact, Jesus' perfect keeping of the fourth commandment just shows us how rebellious we all truly are. Every chore given to Jesus was obediently completed without even a hint of taking back or talking back or lollygagging. How many of you can say that? Your parents gave you chores. You did it without even talking back or without any lollygagging. Jesus never threw a fit when his parents said that he couldn't have something. Jesus never snuck out of his house to hang out with friends that his parents didn't approve of. Jesus never hid behind the backstop at the schoolyard to sneak a smoke or to swig a beer. Jesus always applied Himself wholeheartedly to His homework and to His study of the Scriptures and never procrastinated. Need I go on? But all of this Jesus was doing, He was doing it for you and in your place. He wasn't being obedient in order to save Himself. He was being obedient in order to save you and to save me. Because, well, let's be honest, even our best obedience is far from the type of obedience that Jesus rendered. So many times when we obey and do the right thing, getting up the energy to do it takes some time. And even then, so many times we just go through the motions while our attitudes and our feelings are far, 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 far behind. We've even come up with a phrase for describing this kind of obedience. The phrase is, fake it until you make it. But Jesus never once had to fake it when it came to obeying God's law. From day one, Jesus never merely honored God with His lips, or mindlessly went through the actions while his heart was far from God. Instead, Jesus became obedient even to the point of laying down his own life and even doing that in the most painful and shameful way possible by being crucified on a cross. And all of that 
He did for you so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have a right standing with God. Back to the text. So why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. Kind of tough. It's difficult. Because here's Jesus. He looks just like any other 12-year-old. But here, He very politely, and in a way that honors His parents, reminds them who His true Father is and why He's come to do what He's come to do. So, they didn't understand it. They didn't. Difficult to understand. You have to be given this to understand. So, the text then says this, He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and He was submissive to them, obeying the fourth commandment perfectly. And His mother treasured up all of these things in her heart, wondering, what does it mean? And the text ends kind of where it left off. And Jesus increased in wisdom. And He increased in stature. And He increased in favor and grace with God and with man. And this increasing of favor and stature continued all the way to Jesus' death and His resurrection. And we know this from Philippians chapter 2, which says, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now this says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and has bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of His Father. God the Father in heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.